From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today we're continuing our series on the career of filmmaker Witt Stillman, director of movies like Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, and Love and Friendship. And I just like to do as many things as I can before I croak. I really have to be more serious, I think, about trying to do things that are manageable, that will get backing, and um, be more proactive in trying to get um, stuff going. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite disappointed in myself, I have to say. In today's show, we're exploring Stillman's return to filmmaking following a long period of development heck, which led to the Amazon pilot The Cosmopolitans and his seemingly inevitable Jane Austen adaptation, Love and Friendship. Stay tuned. If I should suddenly start to sing... Welcome to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. For the past few weeks, we've been tracking the career of filmmaker Witt Stillman, a writer and director who entered the scene with 1990's Metropolitan. He quickly established a coherent style and tone in his follow-ups, 1994's Barcelona and 1998's The Last Days of Disco, commonly referred to as the doomed bourgeoisie and love trilogy. Then he struggled to get another film made until 2011's Damsels in Distress. By this point, as his characters sing at the end of Damsels, things were looking up. And it's covered with four-leaf clover. Oh, things are looking up since love looked up at me. Even with the gap, Stillman's appeal endured. Here is Girish Shambu, author of the new Cinephilia, on the appeal of Witt Stillman. Witt Stillman makes satires and it's a form that I'm particularly drawn to and I know I've read interviews with him where he's where he's talked about he doesn't really see himself as a satirist or he says you know I don't think I'm a satirist Uh, but he is generous enough to say uh, I think in one interview he said if other people perceive them as satires you know that's fine and I'm one of those other people so I would say one of the things I like most about Stillman's movies beyond of course the humor Uh, and the way they capture a particular time, place, and subset of people, a subculture, is the fact that they're willing to uh, send up, to satirize, to make fun of uh, people, rather than only being nostalgic pieces that yearn for an older time. There's a little bit of that in Stillman, of course, but I think his films are just more complex than that. And I think I like this multi-layered, uh, complex nature of his films. Um, I'll, I'll always appreciate them, and they always draw me back. I found that I've watched his films, you know, multiple times because of that reason. So uh, he's a filmmaker who's special to me. Damsels in Distress offered Stillman a chance to not only create new homages to some of his influences, but also to work with some of the people his early films had influenced. I wondered how critic Mariah E. Gates characterized the influence of Witt Stillman. Uh, what would you say his legacy is on the filmmakers who have followed him? Well, definitely Noah Bombach is is the most direct descendant. And I think you can really see that, especially in Bombach's earlier films. And they, you know, shared the Greta Gerwig connection. Here's a clip featuring Chris Eigeman alongside Eric Stoltz and Peter Bogdanovich in Noah Bombach's 1997 comedy, Mr. Jealousy. And what bothers you about that part of your past something you wrote about all of it i feel like i'm not a good writer that i I wrote a book of short stories but i only had one story to tell i i don't know i get into fist fights when i'm depressed 
and I begin to feel that I'm not a good person. My relationship now with Irene, we finally hit that point where I've stopped viewing everything we do as material for my next book. Thank God. And she's the first girl I've gone out with that I haven't been unfaithful to. And I just want it to stay that way. I don't want to be unfaithful, but it's hard. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. It was rare that Lester ever spoke without thinking a hundred times about what he was going to say, but this day was an exception. What? Take some responsibility for yourself. Don't blame it on your nature. How can you say at your age that you've never been faithful to anyone? What kind of boyfriend are you? The fact that uh, he sort of teamed up with Lena Dunham to some extent to get damsels off the ground, Mm. which makes me think that a lot of these mumblecore filmmakers may have been drawing from what Metropolitan was doing in that it picks this sort of uh, interesting milieu that is known maybe mostly to the author, to the, the filmmaker, and then is usually working within very strict budget confines. Oh, yeah, I can absolutely see that in the mumblecore films. I think you mentioned Noah Baumbach. You also have to sort of think of early Wes Anderson, like Bottle Rocket definitely has a bit of that, like how few places can we shoot and still be really witty and unique. Here's a clip from Wes Anderson's 1997 heist comedy Bottle Rocket, featuring his early but still idiosyncratic dialogue as performed by Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson, and Robert Musgrave. Okay, escape route is crucial, just in case somebody is tailing us or even chasing us, as the case may be. We can't be sure how it is going to happen. Do you think we're going to be chased tonight? Is that a possibility? That's a good question. No, I don't think we're going to be chased. I'm just being hypocritical here. However, I will say... Please don't interrupt me, man, because I'm trying to stay focused on this stuff. You're responsible for the external situation tomorrow. Streets and the getaway. Whoa, whoa, whoa. excuse me. The, are the explosives really necessary here? I think it'd be a lot more simple if I just walk up to the door alone. I, I think that that would be... M- Why are you undermining me, man? How much bullets does this thing take? Bob, look, Please, I'm paying man. attention. God, you're not paying attention if you're messing around with the gun. Now, quit... I- Anthony, just keep the gun on the table. I can't focus unless the gun is on the table. We just paid for it. Shut up, man. Shut up. I'm warning you now. Be quiet, please. It's true, Dignan. I paid for the gun. Say it again. Say it one more time. And to some extent, uh, Wes Anderson is one of those filmmakers who draws from things that aren't quite other films. And so he has his own style. So I feel like he's a really good next version of someone who his inspirations are so from something else that you can't really see any other movies that are like, oh yes, that, that is what Wes Anderson, you know, he, he draws from music and obscure fifties, you know, novels that have been out of print for 70 years and things like that. Royal Tenenbaums definitely has that um, upper echelon. Everything is sort of fairy tale esque. Uh, it's not quite contemporary set, but it, it is. But I, I feel like Wes Anderson's films are like, if Whit Stillman, went like five steps towards John Waters or something, (laughs) Um, which is a fascinating thought. (laughs) Hello. Are you a new student? Yes. We'd like to help you. Seven Oaks was the last of the select seven to go co-ed. An atmosphere of male barbarism predominates. We're going to change all that. Do you know what's the major problem in contemporary social life? The tendency to always seek someone cooler than yourself. Damsels in Distress seems to me one that pushes that direction more overtly. It's 
doesn't have that realistic look uh, of some of his earlier movies. Where do you place Damsels? Does it feel like a big departure to you? Do you think it's kind of him trying to reinvent himself in some way? What do you make of it? Yeah, I think this is a film where he absolutely went as far into not just a version of reality, but a dream space. It's another one where he does touch on his own memories, though. Obviously, Greta Gerwig's character is going to college in the mid 2000s and he went to college in the I think 70s but I think he does tap into an emotional truth in this film and I, I think some of the problem with people connecting to it is the emotional truth is there but there's so much artifice on top that it's hard to get to the emotional truth you can see I guess the DNA in the trilogy in it but it is so far removed in terms of um, the I, I think what your, your point of the musical sequences that's not reality at all. But what musicals were doing was taking emotional truths and highlighting them in such a way that people felt relief. And I, I do think that's what he's trying to do with this film is tap into that way that musicals help you sort of escape reality, even though you still feel that same emotional connection to whatever it is the character is going through. So is that relief? Is that part of the emotional truth you feel in Damsels? Or what would you say the emotional truth he's trying to convey is there? The gap between high school and college, even though a lot of times those movies take place that summer and you still feel like a high school movie, right? But truly, the minute you step on a college campus, it is such a complete, an utter change in everything about your life, your, everything. Um, and I think he captures that over the overwhelming feeling of everything being different, literally everything being different. And, and I think a musical is a good way to do that because musicals are so transformative. Now, Damsels has this great cast. It's got Greta Gerwig, Adam Brody, Aubrey Plaza, Zach Woods, a million other people who are you know, have gone on to bigger things since then or maybe are more closer, closer to being household names at this point. Um, but it's interesting that both Last Days of Disco and Damsels didn't really click with a bigger audience in the way that it seemed like he had some momentum with in Metropolitan and Barcelona. Why do you think it's been a little bit harder for him uh, after those first two movies to build into a bigger audience overall? I think part of it is the change out of the era where, frankly, where yuppies would be watching movies. I think I think his audience aged. And I don't know that younger audiences came to his films the way they do say Wes Anderson every couple of years, a new group of people discover Wes Anderson and they can watch it and they'll watch it and they'll love it. And I don't know that there's something about what Whit Stillman does and the kind of witty repartee his characters have that don't, doesn't quite speak to the youth. <laughs> and I don't know if he was ever trying to speak to the youth, but I think, um, economically you just see people going to the theater less and less when they're out of their thirties. And I don't know that he, uh, until the, like the trilogy was released on Criterion, I don't think he attracted a new audience. And so like that, if, if damsels had come out after Criterion put out that, that box set, I, th I honestly do think it would have done better. And Greta Gerwig hadn't quite broken out. He hit on somebody who was on the cusp but he wasn't on the cusp anymore, right? Whereas with Metropolitan, his cast, they were all on the cusp, but he was also on the, on the cusp. And Hollywood loves a new face. Hollywood loves to talk about and, and amplify a, a discovery, but it's very rare for directors to then keep that momentum. And I think 
for one thing, Stillman at least has a hardcore fan. I, I hate to use this word, but he kind of is like one of those cult directors where there are hardcore fans who will watch everything he does, but he's not a, he's not a fresh commodity anymore. And so when Damsels in Distress came out, it should have been this big thing. He hasn't made a movie in 13 years, but at that point, the people who cared probably weren't going to theaters anymore. Thanks a lot. No big deal. No, no, it is a big deal. We finally get to a good party and are beginning to meet great people when some jerk thinks it's a good idea to call a drug dealer? I didn't think it was a good idea. It was more a compulsion. I finally meet a terrific girl than having even the chance to get her number. Yeah, that was stupid. You should always get the number right away. Won't the metro be closed by now? Oh, man, now we'll never get home. What the? Getting a taxi on Saturday night after the metro closes? What a whiner. No wonder women can stand you. They hate that. Stillman's pilot for the Cosmopolitans aired on Amazon Prime Video as part of an experiment where Prime customers could vote on which projects they wanted to see become full seasons. As of recording, more scripts have been ordered for the Cosmopolitans, but no additional episodes have been filmed. Right. I think the viewing habits certainly are changing. And Damsels was sort of right before you started to get these streaming projects that started to cater to people who might have a niche audience, right? And so he does try to pivot to what would be kind of like TV, you know, a streaming series with the Cosmopolitans at Amazon. Um, and that, yeah. that was pitched as kind of intentionally going back to the roots of Metropolitan as opposed to creating a new grammar. Did you have a chance to watch the Cosmopolitans pilot? Yeah, I, I watched it. Um, they were doing like that pitch thing, you know, where they, when it first came out, they were, they had like five pilots and, and people got to vote. I don't think Amazon does that anymore, no. but when they were just starting, they had like pilot season and you could vote. And um, I watched that pilot. That was a crazy experiment on Amazon's part. <laughs> you know that Shakespearean admonition to thine own self be true? It's premised on the idea that thine own self is something pretty good, being true to which is commendable. But what if thine own self is not so good? What if it's pretty bad? Would it be better in that case not to be true to thine own self? See, that's my situation. The one I like is A2 Brute. There are different ways of being loyal. Some may seem on the surface disloyal, but they're not. There's a higher loyalty. I think one thing that's so different in him trying to make essentially a a combination of Metropolitan and Barcelona there was he's using some of the new cast. It seems like he's sort of trying to build a new troupe out of some people from Damsels. Uh, Then he brings back Chloe Sevigny. But there's no Chris Eigeman. And it does feel different. I don't think it's necessarily like you can't have a Whit Stillman movie without him, but it, uh, Stillman called him his, his mascot at some point. And it, some people even in reviews have said, you know, someone like Woody Allen, his voice is his voice because he's playing the main character or other people are playing a version of Woody Allen when they're in his movies. And I think a lot of people associated with Stillman's voice with Chris Eigenman. And maybe it's been difficult to recapture yeah. that. I would agree with that. I think part of the reason... I particularly love those those three films is because of of his performance. I, he's so charming and so funny. And what's interesting is is he is in a ton of other projects. Um, he was on Gilmore Girls for a season. Um, he was on Girls. He um, had his own TV show called It's Like You Know in the '90s. That I feel like I'm the only person who watched the whole show. <laughs> um, it had Jennifer Grey played herself in it. It was a great show, but. Um, in all of those, he still feels a bit like a, 
Witzelman character adrift in the world of Gilmore Girls or adrift in Los Angeles in the case of his sitcom. Um, and I think you also see the same thing with, with him where his career, while steady, you know, didn't go higher than the three films they made together. It was sort of the pinnacle of the two of them. I actually don't know why they stopped working together. I know they've done um, retrospective things together, so I don't think they hate each other or anything, but I do think there was like a simpatico between him as a performer and Stillman as a writer director that was that alchemy that you're always looking for. But I know a lot of directors, they try to do new things and, you know, Stillman was trying to get away from working on these projects that were sort of based on his life. And I guess Eggman being this sort of id version of him, like had to be left on the wayside as well, um, which is unfortunate because I do think that is a big part of why those three films People still love them today. It's a timeless performances. But I also think part of it, it really is like they're of a certain time in in movie making. You know, there's movies go through waves. And I think in the 90s, you started to see sort of more adult films coming back, you know, the indie boom. So you had not adult as in porn, but adult as in conversation-based films or films that had um, ideas behind them and films that wanted to give you things to think about, not necessarily give you answers or just give you adrenaline thrills, although there was a lot of great 90s action as well. And, um, you know, you saw uh, Nicole Holof Center have a, a lot of similar sort of films, and she's managed also to sort of keep making films and keep making the same kind of films, but they they still sort of peaked in that, in that 90s era. And I think the economics of how films got greenlit changed, you know, you had digital filmmaking was supposed to democratize films a little. And to some extent, there are more films, certainly, but there are less film independent sort of voices that make it through the the din now. And, and to your point about Mumblecore, that was one of the few movements in the post-digital era that really launched talent. It launched Greta Gerwig. And there was a whole group of filmmakers that sort of came out of that movement and it's some of the only filmmakers you can think of that the digital transition really helped so you have like with Stillman not being able to make necessarily get projects off the ground he talks about how he had films that have he's written and they're alive in his head but they never got made you have filmmakers like John Waters who couldn't make films um, David Lynch like the whole economics of filmmaking just completely changed in the 2000s and a lot of these unique voices sort of fell by the wayside because of it. So Stillman, whose thematic concerns have always been centered around characters who feel the world is passing them by, returned to a new media landscape, one dominated by streamers. His new backer, a company you've probably heard of, Amazon. There existed in the 2010s, and there still exists, an interesting paradox among so-called independent filmmaking. Finding authenticity in human experience under an umbrella of one of the world's biggest corporations. After the break, I'm talking with Whit Stillman about the Cosmopolitans and the inevitability of his Jane Austen adaptation, Love and Friendship. Welcome back to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. 
In this final installment of our series on the films of Witt Stillman, we're discussing his return to filmmaking after over a decade of exile. What he refers to as development heck ended in 2011 with the comedy Damsels in Distress, starring Greta Gerwig, which led to a fruitful partnership with none other than Amazon Studios. I noticed that this second phase of his career had a shared motif, perhaps a crystallization of the philosophy behind all of his projects, appropriately delivered in a sermon. Miss Vernon, it's so good to see you here. Might I help you? Yes. A friend was asking how, in accord with Christian teaching, the Fourth Commandment should be honored. The Fourth Commandment? Yes, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. No, I meant the commandment, honor thy mother and father. The fifth commandment, my favorite. It's the Church of Rome that has it as the fourth. Yes, the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Beautiful, profound. I believe one should apply this sentiment of gratitude and loyalty to every aspect of our lives. We, we're not born into a savage wilderness, but into a, a beautiful mansion of the Lord that the Lord and, and those who have gone before us have constructed. We must avoid neglecting this mansion, but rather glorify and preserve it, as we should all of the Lord's creation. Uh, the superb Baumgarten has outlined this aesthetic trinity as beauty, truth, and good. Truth is uh, the perfect. Perceived by reason, uh, beauty by the senses, and uh, the good by moral will. Is this our rosebud? Did I crack the code? I pitched my theory to Stillman. I wondered if this is kind of a, a little bit of a mission statement for you. And also kind of it works as a distillation of the conflicts in your movies where these characters are – concerned, worried, or wanting to get into the mansion, and they're, they're concerned that maybe the savage wilderness will overtake the mansion, and maybe all of these arcs are sort of toward what you would call glorification. Is that, uh, is there something there? Am I reading too much into it? Well, I think the first part you're right, but the second part, not. I love the commandment, honor thy father and mother, because I think it's much bigger than just the specifics of your personal father and mother. I think it's sort of the, the father and mother of our culture, the father and mother of our civilization, the father and mother of our religion. I mean, I think each of the commandments can be understood in really important ways. And I think a lot of these things can be important for people who are secular, too, because, you know, very often my sort of stance, much of my life is secular. I'm you know, not a real, um, there's a word for it, people of weak faith. And so I think... Everything I try to have that's religious-themed, I hope there's also a, a secular way of interpreting it that is true, too. Is filmmaking itself uh, like a spiritual act for you? Not in the least. <laughs> okay. I wasn't sure. I mean, art as the creation of art, the creation of expression, there have been a lot of people uh, in history who've seen that as having some kind of sacred qualities, but it's just craft and it's work for you? Well, no, I mean, I do think that when you come up with ideas, yes. And so everything that is sort of creative does partake of that. But you feel it more when you're writing and then you feel it in performance when the... I mean, so often we lose sight of just how much 
actors are bringing to our projects. And of course, we have a role in that because we see who can interpret things in a way and who can add something to to what... I mean, one of the, I think, revelations in Love and Friendship, and maybe it's getting late in my career to have so many revelations, is comic actors, comedians, I mean, can bring such things to to your work. So we have these you know, great comedians working on Love and Friendship who really added to, to what was happening on the page. Comedians in the sense that, like, in the past, maybe you wouldn't go for someone who's known for having those comedic instincts, and then you, they're able to bring out an energy or a tone of, of some sort on in when you're actually filming the scene? We've been able, since we're sort of under the radar as far as star casting, generally we have been, uh, we've been able to sort of have everyone read in auditions and you really get a feeling of like who solves the problem, who has the key to unlock the part. And generally, there's just one person. Finally, this person makes it true and comes alive. And you've been really discouraged because the scenes aren't working. But then this one person comes along who knows how to do it. And it's great. That was the way I was casting before. And then maybe this is more comedy, comedy material. And we got a couple of people who really... Uh, brought all this into it. And I, I think also in Damsels, we had some comic performers who were kind of geniuses. And so I guess it's a combination of more comic material, more out-and-out comic material, and comic actors or comedians who act, who do amazing things with that. Damsels in Distress comes out, and then shortly after that, you have the Amazon pilot, The Cosmopolitans. It's interesting in retrospect how Amazon did make this big push for witty intellectual comedies from idiosyncratic voices like you, Woody Allen, Gillian Robespierre, rather than as they're doing now, which is chasing really big hits. And when I talked to Taylor Nichols, he said he thinks there's a silver lining in the fracturing of our popular culture, which is that streaming opens the doors to a lot of projects that don't need to be the next Game of Thrones to be considered successful. They need to reach their audience, and that audience can be fairly small compared to the, the massive tent poles. So, I mean, do you think streaming does open new possibilities for you and the types of stories you like to tell? When... The old regime was at Amazon, Roy Price and Joe Lewis and others, a lot of really great people. And it looked like it was head, heading that direction. But unfortunately, they were almost all sacked and Jeff Bezos wanted um, Game of Thrones. And I think it was sort of awful how badly they're treated by the press in many ways. There are a lot of people in the press out to get them. And it's odd that when people do, you know, worthwhile things, even if they don't want to work, if they're trying to do good stuff, how how vicious some people in journalism are. They were kind of taken down. I, I really regret that. It was it was a great moment. Is that true? What? Well, do you hate whiners? No. In fact, I think I'm perversely attracted to them. The Cosmopolitans has an interesting line where Aubrey, not Audrey, played by Carrie McLemore, says that she's perhaps perversely attracted to whiners. Um, and I, I don't mean this to sound mean because I, I'm leading to a bigger point here. But I wonder if that's true of a lot of your audience and then actually a lot more people in the world, which is we actually have a stigma around whining but tend to enjoy it, that maybe there's something charming and cathartic about it. Like, you know, Twitter is almost all whining and people seem to love it. What, what, what do you think about the place of whining in our culture? I'm not sure how I feel about whiners. <laughs> I mean, I am one, but um, I, I can't. I don't want to go to the bat for, for the community of whiners. <laughs> Fair enough. 
the Cosmopolitans feels in some ways like an amalgam of Metropolitan and Barcelona, but TV is by necessity structured and paced differently. You're working in episodes. So what was it like to dip your toes in familiar, a familiar sort of story and familiar sort of world, but in this different medium? In the case of Cosmopolitans, I sort of recreated the feature experience because I really wanted to do an hour show, an hour episode. But they said, oh, if you do an hour, um, you'll have to go with this other executive team. You won't have uh, Joe Lewis and Sarah Babineau, who had been, I'd been working with. And so I said, okay, um, I'll, I'll do it as a half hour. And also in the script I wrote, there are problems in the second half of it. And that turned out to be a really good experience because we didn't really have enough Chloe Sevigny in the first half hour. And Joe Lewis came to Paris and said, couldn't we have more scenes with Chloe? And so I had some material from later in that script that I could bring forward. Harry McLemore, who was playing Aubrey, had said some interesting, funny things. So I did the uh, 4am writing thing to, to make that scene between them, which was about my favorite scene in the show. So I sort of was writing longer and then reducing it. I mean, I really like working with those guys. The only thing I sort of disagreed with them was this intense, intense pressure to cut and cut and cut. And I think sometimes if you cut too much, you actually make things seem longer and um, you lose a little too much. So I think we cut too much from Cosmopolitans. There's some meat there and bones that we got rid of. And, but it was a good experience. After the break, I'm talking with critics Fran Hoffner and Mariah E. Gates about Stillman's later work. And we'll hear again from Stillman about love and friendship and what he hopes to make in the future. And welcome back to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. You're listening to the final episode of our series on American Auteur with Stillman. Director of celebrated 90s films like Metropolitan and The Last Days of Disco, and more recent ones like Dandles in Distress and Love and Friendship. For someone whose characters are so often rooted in his experience and worldview, I wondered how critics might characterize this second phase of his career compared with his 90s trilogy. I spoke with critic Fran Hoffner about just that. Would you say that there's a, a difference then between his approach in those characters as opposed to Lady Susan in Love and Friendship is, I don't know that she, she's not like evil necessarily, right? And she, in some ways you root for her because it's sort of fun to watch her, uh, you know, navigate all these conventions of the time and sort of maybe, maybe move past them or not revere them. And that in and of itself is kind of satisfying. Do you think that the approach to characters, is, is it fundamentally different in Love and Friendship than in those early movies? I almost think in Love and Friendship, the class divides between these characters feels so much more obvious, or if not stated, just because works from this time are very direct and open about the class structures between their characters. It's a specifically English literature from that time period and even now is that you know where everyone stands at any given point. Working in sort of an American canon, it's maybe a little fussier and also unstated. So when I'm watching a Stillman film, I, you know, from that original trilogy, I don't necessarily know that 
you know, like a naval officer and a guy in advertising, I don't really know or know how to contend with what differences may exist between them. Um, it seems to be a little more push and pull. In Love and Friendship, it's just very stated. It's very obvious. I don't think that's a knock on it. I think it's fun to root for Lady Susan in part because it's always fun to root for Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> um, and I think there's there's sort of this like private joy in that film that you can certainly enjoy it not knowing who Whit Stillman is, but if you do know and are familiar with his work, it's just nice to see the friends back together which I think makes everyone feel instantly maybe more likable than they do when you, when you don't know some of the major players. But I really just think it's, it's the location and the geography of that particular story that makes it feel so different. It's, it's, and it's actually an entirely different system that just sounds the same in a lot of ways. I mean, when I initially saw a lot of these Stillman films, I found them very nihilistic and pessimistic and I was overwhelmed almost by what I felt to be this really negative sensibility not only about these people but about the type of society that they perpetuate and I was not really able to separate his criticism of these symptoms with just this like overwhelming like this is so bad and it struck me on rewatch specifically in Metropolitan and in Last Days of Disco the optimism there's cynicism in the optimism for sure but even as these characters are joking in metropolitan about being you know, downwardly mobile they are loosely hopeful for their future and they have to believe in order to make it to the next party or the next dance or the next night out at the club that something better will happen than the last time they were there but even when they appear to be having the worst time imaginable they're going to keep going because they think there's something there on that other side and i found that hopefulness especially as like a youthful hopefulness very beautiful and very charming it really endeared me to these characters far more on rewatch than i initially felt in the beginning i really wasn't sure if i was supposed to be laughing at them or with them initially and now when i watch i really am laughing with them. I know that these people are being funny to each other. Seems Lady Susan will finally visit. Lady Susan Vernon. That woman's a fiend. Jane Austen has been present in Stillman's work since the very beginning, with long conversations about Mansfield Park in 1990s Metropolitan. So Austen serves as a kind of looming presence, a perhaps obvious in retrospect choice of adaptation, which Stillman finally got around to in 2016 with Love and Friendship. Lady Susan. How dare you address me, sir? Be gone or I will have you whipped. Outrageous. Have you never met him? No, I know him well. I would never speak to a stranger like that. I spoke with critic Mariah E. Gates about what we might call the specter of Austin. What did you think of Love and Friendship? I think it, it's actually a, a wonderful Jane Austen adaptation. I think one of the things that often gets lost in translation from her work is is the wit, but also the um, the sourness, for lack of a better word. Like she, she was a satirist. She was making fun of these people. She didn't particularly care for the things that were you were supposed to care about as a woman at that time. That's why she wrote all these all these um, comedy manner sort sort of novels instead of settling down and getting married and having kids like she was supposed to. And 
what I do love about this one is that it feels as frothy as I think Austin wanted her films to be. They are not supposed to be stuffy period pieces. They're supposed to be funny. They're supposed to make you laugh at the characters. Um, and I think Stillman knows Austin inside out and really tapped into that type of, or that style within her work that often doesn't come through in other adaptations. And that's not to say I don't like other adaptations, like pretty much any BBC Austin adaptation, I will watch it. But I, I do think this comes closer to, I think her intended tone than a lot of those adaptations do. That's kind of a, a similar conflict in a lot of his works where characters aren't sure how much they want to continue to be part of a tradition or, you know, reinvent it or if there's a future at all because maybe they're stuck in this dead tradition. There's one way to look at that as having uh, almost a progressive politics, right, of really interrogating what traditions are worth keeping, what aren't, and how that affects people. But then you've also had uh, the American Conservative and National Review have lauded Stillman as this prominent conservative filmmaker. And I can kind of see how you get there from what values he thinks are worth protecting, this sort of push against vulgarity. But it, it, I don't know if it, it's totally accurate to me to see him as like, oh, he's he's this conservative comedy filmmaker. That feels a little reductive to me. What, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's definitely one of those where I'm not – sure how to how to interpret his politics and i know he's he's spoken a lot about trying to stay apolitical <laughs> as a person and i think he i don't think he particularly thinks of his films as political i know he wrote for uh, i think it was a spectator in the 70s and had some very strange uh ideas i think at the time if you look at those pieces but also he was in his 20s and i feel like most people in their 20s are still sort of figuring out how much they want to either be like what their parents taught them or to rebel against what their parents taught them or to come up with their own sort of sense of politics because they're supporting themselves. So I, it's hard to say, like, are his films conservative? It's I mean, they're in this certain milieu that I'm sure his characters are likely. <laughs> um, I, if not conservative, definitely the kind of liberals who are lip service liberals. So it's interesting because I don't know that he's necessarily a conservative filmmaker though i do think he is presenting conservative characters that makes sense because that is the sort of people he knew and it's sort of leaving it up to you to decide are they ridiculous or do they make points <laughs> i wonder if that's maybe something that's sort of unique about him that he's able to actually find a space between these poles in the way that we we tend to perceive yeah. reality that way yeah and i think like the last days of disco is a good example um i think kate beckinsale's character is very much what I would expect of like a very rich, if not conservative, then definitely liberal in that they give money to charity <laughs> sort of liberal. But Chloe Shevenge's character is progressive in that she is making these really bold personal choices. Um, and she's, she is passionate about her job. I love that she's always, she's always trying to do better at the job, even though Charlotte's character isn't, why are they both trying to be book editors? It's it's unclear. But at the same time, she gave it a very like cloistered space. If she's trying to be this bold sexual person at these clubs and like, is failing miserably. There's something really sexy about Scrooge McDuck. You really think so? There's that scene where she talks about is it Donald Duck being sexy and you're like, oh Scrooge no. McDuck, I think. Um, Scrooge McDuck, yeah, but at the same time, you're like, you know what? <laughs> you're trying. <laughs> and so I love her character because she really is 
such a mess and conflicting about her job, conflicting about her friends, or conflicted about her job, conflicted about her friends, conflicted about where she stands morally on any subject. Whereas Charlotte is just, she's so vapid. (laughs) She, she really is like a a yuppie, even though she won't say it. She's, she values money and what people look like and getting everything she can. And I think that's my favorite of his three films because those two characters could be polar opposites, like in a lesser filmmaker, but instead they're little bit mirrors of each other. So what was it that finally got Stillman to adapt Austin explicitly instead of the implicit adaptation that some have alleged Metropolitan to be? I asked him. Love and Friendship, was that one that appealed to you uh, beyond just the the comedic possibilities, the dramatic possibilities, but because it's not that well known and because it's not written as a full novel the same way as some of the others, it's, it's epistolary. So I imagine it allowed you to share authorship with her in a way that's a little bit more overt and you wouldn't have to rewrite a classic in that sense. You kind of had more free reign, I imagine. Is that part of what the appeal was with coming up with how to do love and friendship? Yeah, that, that was exactly it. It's really appealing having something where I could add to the Jane Austen bookshelf or DVD shelf or Blu-ray shelf, um, something that really hadn't been there. I mean, there are Jane Austen fans who read Lady Susan, but not that many. And in the other films, it would be sort of reducing something to a 90-minute film or a 100-minute film that really couldn't be captured in that in that time but it really started as a less serious project i had two jane austen ideas one i still hope to do that's really serious full-scale dramatic jane austen movie and some people really like the idea and doing lady susan was kind of a joke that a young theater producer in london i met and had cocktails with with other friends and i said you know this could be done in your tiny theater in london so I started writing it as a tiny play to do in his tiny theater. He went off, got involved in uh, all kinds of other businesses, and I was left with the project. And he did the theater form because uh, uh, film is just so wonderful as far as all the things you can do, the cutting and all that. So I gave up the idea of doing it as a play first. You know, the Marx Brothers used to test all their material. They'd go out perform it theatrically and then and then shoot it and it's a it's a good way of going about generating a project but in my case i was much too limited to film imagination and i couldn't quite get my head around all the things you need to do for a play so it became a, a film project and since a lot of projects they're sort of on a time limit you've got a two-year option to adapt a, a book or you have to finish the script before the writer's strike or all these time constraints. And in this case, since I didn't really have a commission, I could work on it when I wasn't just trying to write something to get my health insurance from, from, from the Writer's Guild. And so that really helped that I could, you know, put it away and then come back to it. The honor thy mother and thy father is uh, the favorite commandment, I believe, of the young curate as well in Love and Friendship. And it's a movie that in some ways is about that. In, in some ways, it's about a mother deciding how and whether to honor her daughter I wonder if the parenthood element was something that appealed to you as maybe a different sort of perspective than what you'd explored in previous works. Uh, It allowed us to go different places with casting. I wasn't particularly interested in mother-daughter stories or parental stories. Uh, I was really interested in how funny Jane Austen was and sort of funny and evil in this. I mean, 
in a, in a good way, letting her imagination race ahead with this terrible character, who in certain ways is related to our more sympathetic, funny characters. So the Kate Beckinsale parts in the two films she's in are related to the Chris Eigenman parts in the films he's in, which is also related to the Greta Gerwig part in Damsels. So there is sort of a extravagant, larger-than-life personality that I find really attractive. And in Love and Friendship, it's the only one where she's pretty bad. She's kind of the villain and the hero in that you you do root for her in the sense, like, it's, it's fun to watch her successfully manipulate the circumstances around her and the the circumstances, the expectations of the society around her, really because it's fun to watch that happen, um, not necessarily because you root for her intentions or you, you want her to achieve what she's doing out of virtue, which I imagine is is kind of a difficult uh, you know, line to walk for you as you're telling that story, which is how do you make sure that she's bad enough to be fun but not so bad that people stop being invested in her and her goals? Yes, I never really had a clear idea of what an anti-hero was, um, but delving into Lady Susan Vernon, she really is an anti-hero. And um, I think there are a couple of factors that make her bearable. First, she's funny. She's saying a lot of things that are sort of true. Almost everyone ends up in a better place because of what she does. Almost everyone really ends up, except for one person. So the sensitive thing was how not to make us feel sympathy for the person she really um, injures, who's Lady Mannering. And casting provided the solution to that. Um, Jen Murray, who played the part, came up with this terrific version in her audition, where she just made her such a hysteric that she wasn't sympathetic at all. And it's one thing I found, and as a whiner and a crybaby, I have to remember this, if you're just an outrageous crybaby whiner, you become really unsympathetic. And um, <laughs> she's just horribly hysterical and, and, and ridiculous. And so we don't have to feel sympathy ultimately for Lady Mannering. Now it sounds like maybe your process has gotten a little bit more open, um, a little bit more experimental as you go, even though you've got these confines. Do you think that when you direct a movie now, it's totally different from what you were doing in the 90s because of the experience and just that sort of openness that you're learning to uh, you know, appreciate and experiment with on set? It is a process. I mean, I, I feel badly I'm not doing more projects and movies because you do feel you've learned things in your career and you could use them and do a better job and things like that. But we try to deal with the problems and opportunities earlier than on set. So, yes, it's in the process of making the movie. So you do, you know, that read through early on. You see, like, where it's going, the strong points and the weak points, and you adapt. I mean, I think the thing is once you see something that's not right, you, you start adapting. And once you see potential for something even better, you, you move on that. But I, I really think um, it's a good idea to having all that decided and prepared for, you know, before you're, you're shooting. And um, it's pretty darn uncomfortable for Tom Bennett to get this quite long scene for the, for the 12 Commandments. So, Frederica, you, you read both verse and poetry. 
In this, I believe, you take after your mother, who knows a great many things. Just yesterday, she cited to me a story from the Bible about a very wise king. This reminded me of many such uh, accounts one learns in childhood. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the Twelve Commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. Twelve Commandments? Mm. Excuse me, but uh, <clears throat> I believe there were only ten. Really? Only ten must be obeyed. Excellent! <laughs> right as he's getting in the makeup chair, right before, and telling the makeup artist, please take more time than you've ever taken with me before so I can study it. It's amazing the actors were able to to do that. The idea of Alicia Johnson played by Chloe Sevigny being American and being uh, from Connecticut came when, when she came over. I'd been steeped in reading about the history of the War of Independence and the Tories and the exiled Tories in England and all this, and it seemed to me that um, having her sent to a country village was nothing compared to having her sent back to Hartford, Connecticut. And both um, Chloe and I share um, Connecticut backgrounds, hers recent, mine historical, and um, and to have sort of Connecticut punchline seemed fun. And, and there were a lot of things about British attitude towards Americans that we could put in because I knew that that worked really well from Barcelona. People enjoy the sort of contempt Europeans have for us. That gets a lot of laughs. Americans really enjoy seeing that. And the Europeans like seeing it too because they do feel that way. It was a chance of getting into themes where the Lisa Johnson character, it's very nice of Chloe to agree to play it, but she was sort of a listening post for Lady Susan and it gave her her own identity and her own things to talk about. As I was uh, re-watching Love and Friendship to prepare for this, uh, there's the, the, a quote that is, I think, in a lot of reviews about the movie as well, and one that played, I think, for a laugh in a very innocent way when the movie came out, which is, facts are horrid things. And uh, what, a, what a line for a movie that came out in 2016 in general. And I, it made me think about your relationship with this is a, a period piece. It doesn't seem to me to be commenting on anything contemporary. But nevertheless, it's sort of inevitable that the world that we're living in colors in the way that we watch something or read something that is about the past. So, I mean, is that something that you think about the way that as the world changes, as the world uh, maybe rejects facts, someone like Lady Susan plays differently 10 years ago, five years ago than she does now? Is that on your radar at all? No, I actually wasn't thinking about that at all. It's one of the great lines in Jane Austen's story. And we were shooting this in um, 2015, and I was probably working on it in 2000, uh, or actually a little later than that. But it's a good thing. Usually the audience um, brings something to to an experience. Um, sometimes it can get you in real trouble when context change and something becomes controversial when it shouldn't be controversial. But in that case, it's Jane Austen in the 18th century. I mean, I think one thing to remark upon is the latter half of the 18th century, how lucid and intelligent and um, commonsensical it was. I mean, it's really thanks to that 
time that we have our, our wonderful constitution and system of government because people really were thinking very well and expressing themselves very well back then. And so it's, it's great material. As far as your upcoming projects go, as we sort of reach the end of our time here, I know you've said you want to be more prolific. You've mentioned that you have the, the Splendid Affinities, which is a show that I believe is moving in kind of a, a genre direction toward spy adventure, like a European adventure of sorts. Is, is there a, a plan for what you want the next phase of your career to look like? There's the series, which could become a feature. And then there's another thing I really have to do, an adaptation. And then I just like to do as many things as I can before I croak. I really have to be more serious, I think, about trying to do things that are manageable, that will get backing, be more proactive in trying to get um, stuff going. I'm, I'm quite disappointed in myself, I have to say. Um, Foraising was tried in the 19th century and, and failed. I mean, wasn't Brook Farm Foraised? It failed. That's debatable. Whether Brook Farm failed? That it ceased to exist, I'll grant you, but whether it was really a failure, I don't think can be definitively said. Well, well, for me, ceasing to exist is, is failure. I mean, that's, that's pretty definitive. Well, everyone ceases to exist. That doesn't mean everyone's a failure. For a certain type of filmmaker, success isn't rooted purely in economics, and failure isn't dependent on prolificity. But what's clear is that Whit Stillman demonstrated an abundance of the true currency of the 90s cinema he emerged from, authenticity. To find your voice and know what to do with it, surely that's success all on its own. The Entertainment is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from Damsels in Distress, Love and Friendship, The Cosmopolitans, and Metropolitan. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.